What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I promise we are gonna get back to some longer form solo episodes and guest episodes starting next week. I have Jordan Syatt coming on this weekend. Uh, time of recording, this is the 29th, so maybe, that might, maybe that's New Year's Day, I don't even know. Um, but we're gonna be talking about transitioning into fatherhood. Jordan and his wife just had a baby. And just, you know, that's something Jenna and I are in the midst of discussing and something we're going to do in the near future. Uh, And I just find it a fascinating topic as far as how does your perspective on things change when that happens or how has Jordan's perspective on things changed? Um, So something I'm very excited to chat about, uh, uh, chat about with him. So that's uh, will be coming I don't know, some point next week. So stay tuned. So for today, we're going to go through, I always say I'm going to go through as many as I can in X amount of minutes, but that's just a lie. I'm going to go through all of them. Um, I always look at the clock and I'm like, yeah. Do a few more. Um, I do have about 47 minutes here until I have a call, so we shall see. I always think about naming names. Do people like when their name is read out before the question? I feel like that's like nice to like, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so, this is your question. But then at the same time, like, are people less likely to ask if they know they're going to get called out? I don't know. So we're not going to ask. We're not going to name names for today. First question is thoughts on alternating moves instead of taking breaks to speed up the workout. So essentially what you're asking is thoughts on supersetting exercises. Supersetting is the terminology that you're referring to, which is like pairing exercises together to save time. Generally speaking, supersetting is a is a totally fine way to get very similar results, but save some time. But I recommend at least two things when you're thinking about supersetting. I recommend picking exercises that are non-impeding. You know, people will mention like antagonist antagonist supersets, which means working uh, antagonistic muscles. And so that might be something like a dumbbell press and a row, which are antagonistic movements, antagonistic muscle groups. But that's not so important. I think it's more important that if you're gonna superset two things, that the, the effort that you put forth in the first one doesn't overly hinder the effort that you can put forth in the second one. And so what that means is that you want what's called non-impeding supersets. You want exercises that don't impede on one another. And more appropriately, the first exercise doesn't impede on your ability to do the second exercise really well. And so that can be antagonistic supersets. It can be a dumbbell press and a row, which are antagonistic. It could be a leg extension and a ham curl, which are antagonistic. But it doesn't have to be. It can be an upper body and a lower body. It can be a tricep push down and a walking lunge. It can be a a, a lat pull down and a leg press. And so, you know, non-impeding supersets would be what I would recommend if your goal is to save time. There are other strategies where you can do um like same muscle group supersets. We could talk about that another time, but as far as saving time, we want non-impeding supersets. My second recommendation is to, again, because I'm not sure exactly how your answer, uh, like what you're, what you're in, envisioning in terms of alternating moves, I wouldn't just go back and forth forever. I wouldn't do like leg press to the lat pull down, back to the leg press, back to the lat pull down without ever resting. So what you would traditionally do is like lat pull down, rest, lat pull down, rest, lat pull down, rest, then leg press, rest, leg press, rest, leg press, rest. I would recommend if you're gonna superset them to do one and then the other and then rest. And so you're not going back and forth forever, never resting. You're just doing both of them once before resting instead of resting after every single one. So you'd like lat pull down, then leg press, then rest. Lat pull down, then leg press, then rest. And so you're still having that opportunity to rest for a bulk of time so that you can perform really well. If you go lat pull down, leg press, lat pull down, leg press, lat pull down, leg press, eventually this is gonna be a cardio workout. Actually, not even eventually, that makes it sound like it would take a long time. Like by the the second round of this, you're gonna be huffing and puffing and sweating and your performance will be limited more so by your endurance cardiometabolic factors, not the actual muscle's ability to produce force. Not locally, it will be more of a systemic fatigue issue. Cool, next question. Would fewer moves, mostly compound, three times a week, lower push-pull work for hypertrophy. So your threshold is would X work for hypertrophy? Um, and so not to not to nitpick, but like what does work for hypertrophy mean? Like can you make gains training this way? Absolutely. Can you make gains training three days a week, lower push-pull? Absolutely, 100%. This discussion of, hey, I know I'm not training a ton of days per week, so how can I make the most of that is a is one of the big basis uh, basis for my talk in March. Uh, we'll, we will be discussing how much should you train, the case for a minimalist approach. Uh, we are gonna be discussing how to make more out of less time. And so what you kind of said was, hey, I know I'm only training three days a week, which by the way, is enough to make gains. I know I put the word only there, but I think that it's more of a perception that three days isn't a lot. So you're saying, 
I'm gonna do less exercises, but I'm gonna keep it mostly compound. I think that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. Mostly comp, if you're not doing as much, let's pick exercises that give you a little bit more per exercise, which is mostly compound lifts. Um, compound meaning, you know, yeah, I don't love that terminology. It's not the most helpful, but like exercises that will work more than one muscle group at a time, let's say. Uh, I think that's a good idea. Hey, I'm doing less sets or I'm doing less exercises. Let me pick stuff that covers more bases. Totally agree with that. Other things you can do to make great gains to is work closer to failure on average, potentially superset like I just talked about, potentially getting a little bit more volume in each day by supersetting without expanding the amount of time you have to be in the gym, considering intensity techniques, uh, choosing exercises that work the length and position, which most traditional, what people think of when they think of compound lifts, most traditional, uh, I guess not most, but many traditional compound lifts do that, whether that's like RDLs or you know, lower body pressing or upper body pressing tends to work more of the length of position. I'd say upper body pulling is the one compound movement pattern that t- tends to be more shortened overload. Um, but working mostly compound, closer to failure, um, more length in position, considering intensity techniques like supersetting, drop sets, myo reps, stuff like that, can be a way that you can get really great gains out of generally less time. Three days a week, lower push-pull can absolutely absolutely work really, really well. I would say that that sounds like a bit more of an upper body biased program. I mean, you have two days of upper body, one day of lower body. So just take that into account. Like, does that actually reflect what you care about? And that's how you should be building your splits there. Next question, rounded back better on back extension for glutes. Oh my God, I love this question. I just, I got, I cracked myself up, man. So I, in my group program right now, we're doing hip extensions. We've done them before, um, but I'm seeing this sort of a question come up of like, hey, I'm feeling it here. What can I do to my technique? Um, and so I realized that I really wanted to re-record a very thorough uh, video, an exercise demonstration for the hip extension but I don't own a hip extension in my home gym. And so I looked at Jen, I was like, ah, shit. Like, I guess I'm gonna have to come to the gym one day, maybe bring my mic, um, which I don't hate doing. The people at the gym are very nice. Uh, I don't love doing it, but you know, I'll do it. And so I thought about it and it was like Saturday morning and I, and I was like gonna go with Jenna. Jenna goes to the gym on Saturdays. And I just looked at her and I was like, I just really don't wanna go. I just really don't want it. Like, it's just not something I wanted to do. Like, I, I'm, I'm just like cracking up that like the thought of like going to a gym, I listen whatever, I don't wanna get over, the, I, it's mostly a funny thing where I was like, I looked up and I was like, you know what? Like, it would be nice to own a hip extension. And so instead of going to like be around other humans, I was like, I'll just buy a hip extension. So the hip extension came as of recording, I put it together last night and I'll be recording a video. In that video that will go in my group program, we will talk about this exact question. I'll answer it now. What your upper back does, listen to me very closely, what your upper back does has nothing to do with your glutes, technically speaking. Um, You can perform a hip extension that will fuck your glutes up with a neutral spine from top to bottom. So neutral lumbar spine, thoracic spine, cervical spine, neutral all the way through there. You can perform a hip extension that will really, really work the glutes. However, what rounding the upper back, by the way, I wanna be clear, rounding your upper back, I wouldn't actively round your lower back. Rounding your upper back, whether that's tucking the chin or encouraging what we would call thoracic flexion, flexing, uh, flexing the upper spine, rounding the upper back, what that does is it makes it less likely that you will go into more lumbar extension. So it makes it less likely that you will use your lower back to raise your torso to extend the hips uh, too much. And so it's almost like less of a physiological thing, a little bit, you could say that a little bit of flexion in the upper back might might turn off the erectors, might be something that people say, but more than anything, rounding your upper back encourages a range of motion that will be more, uh, will, that will be less likely to be dominated by the lower back. And so I, you know, uh, if somebody is doing a beautiful hip extension and I, with a neutral spine, I'll just talk you through some of the scenarios. If someone's doing a beautiful hip extension with amazing technique, perfect neutral spine, head to to you know to coccyx here, we're talking beautiful neutral spine, and they are telling me, and they're not going up too high, everything checks out, looks beautiful, and they're saying, hey, Jordan, I'm feeling this in my lower back a ton. We might try tucking the chin, rounding the upper back, and seeing if that helps. Um, 
personally, I've always found my ability to, to, to do this with a neutral spine has been fine and I get a lot of hams and glutes, but there's a bit of an exploration here that you should be working on yourself. If you're feeling it a lot in your lower back, the first thing I would look at is range of motion. Are you going down too low? Are you coming up too high? Those are by far the number one and two things I would feel, or I would try if you're feeling your 45 degree hip extension in your lower back and not your glutes or your hamstrings is, am I going down too low to where my lower back is rounding? And am I coming up too high into like lum into too much lumbar extension? You know, am I getting beyond the point at which my body is in a straight line at the top. And I know that you guys are mostly, you guys are listening, some of you guys are on YouTube, um, but you're gonna want your body to be in, let's say a straight line at the top. We don't want the upper back to, or you, we don't want your uh, torso via contraction of the lower back to go up beyond that point. Uh, and so one of the ways to prevent that is to round your upper back. If you round your upper back, it's it's less possible for you to go into lumbar hyperextension. Um, the net result of that is, for some people, it can help make the movement more glute dominant. I don't, I wanna be clear. You don't need to do this to target your glutes, but if you are having trouble feeling it in your glutes and your hams and you're feeling it all in your lower back, step one, am I going down too low and am I rounding my lower back? Step two, am I coming up too high and extending through the lower, through, through my lumbar spine, through my erectors uh, too much? Number three, let me try tucking my chin, rounding my upper back and see if that helps. Uh, I would be less worried about the anatomical argument here and I would be more worried about you exploring differences in your technique to figure out which of those works best for you for the goal that you have with that movement. Holy shit, we're 11 minutes in, I've done three of these. Next question, lean build of 200 calorie surplus on training days and maintenance on rest days? So whether, whether, <laughs> Uh, let me just be, uh, I'll be direct with this one here. So let's say you train four days a week and you're in a 200 calorie surplus. That's weekly, you're in an 800 calorie surplus. If you were in an 800 calorie surplus by going into a 113 calorie surplus, I think that works out to 113 calorie surplus seven days a week, which would net out to like um, 791, 791? calorie surplus by the end of the week, so basically the same thing, you will get exactly, exactly the same results. Can you extrapolate this to the extremes? What about if I'm at maintenance for six days and I'm in a 800 calorie surplus on one day? I actually think that it would, I wanna think that it wouldn't be the same, but I really do think the results would be near identical. And so, you know, I think if you extrapolate this to the extreme, what if you were in, like to a real extreme? I know that that sounded extreme, but what about a real extreme? What if you spend six days in a 200 calorie deficit, which would be a net 1200, and then one day in a 2000 calorie surplus, which would net out to an 800 calorie surplus across the week, would that be the same? I don't think so. I think once you're spending time, like many days in a deficit during, like you wanna spend as many days, at least at maintenance, uh, if not in an anab more anabolic state of being in a surplus. And so if we're comparing 200 calories on my workout days to 113 calories on every day, it's fucking the exact same results. I would even say both of those examples against an 800 calorie surplus on one day, maintenance calories on all the other days, you probably would need to extrapolate this across like many years to see a difference if there would even be one. What I wouldn't recommend is if my goal is to build muscle and my goal is to be in a surplus, don't spend any days in a deficit or spend as few days as possible in a deficit. That would be, that would be my, the one thing I would probably not do. Um, next question, why do cable kickbacks give me hip flexor doms? The weight too heavy? If so, how to progress? Reps are already high. Um, speculation a little bit. Um, when you do a glute kickback, what you are doing is end range hip extension. And when you shorten one muscle, you lengthen the muscle on the other side. You lengthen the antagonist. And so when you re, when you use your glutes and a lot of those hip, uh, hip extensors to kick your leg back, what you are doing is you are lengthening your hip flexors. So think about this. When you are shortening a muscle on one side, what you are doing is lengthening the muscle on the other side. When you are doing a... Um, a dumbbell row, let's say, right? Let's say you're doing a chest supported row and you pull your arms all the way behind the body and you, I know you can't look because you're not on YouTube. Some of you guys are on YouTube. And let's say you're doing a dumbbell row and you, or, or a chest supported row and you pull your elbows all the way back behind the body. What you've done is you've shortened the muscles on your back. But if you were watching on YouTube, what this looks like is actually the lengthened position for the pec. 
the the short position on a row, when you pull your arms all the way behind your back, looks like the bottom position of your dumbbell press. Because when you shorten the muscles on the back, you're lengthening the muscles, the antagonist muscles, let's say on the front there. Um, it's like when you are doing a lying leg curl and you pause yourself at the top when your hamstrings are fully shortened. That's where your quads are fully lengthened or equally lengthened. Um, and so one, one thing that comes to mind for me is that maybe your hip flexors have never actually experienced that much lengthening. Now, I would look at your technique and execution to make sure you're doing this right. I think that that's like, it needs to be number one. It's like, okay, maybe there's a technique issue here. Um, but that would be the number one thing that I would think is like your, maybe your hip flexors have never been this lengthened. Um, I also think that to, to, I would look at what else you're doing that day, by the way. And I would look at the rest of your program because maybe it's, part of me puts on my little skeptical hat and I'm not so sure that it's so easy to decide that this is the thing that's giving you hip flexor doms. Um, imagine you were doing a split squat on this day as well and you're doing a split squat and then the next day your hip flexors are sore and you're like, well, it was the glute kickbacks. Like, how, how do you know? Like, it could have been the split squats and actually, in fact, split squats, good example, would be more likely to cause hip flexor doms because the hip flexors are actually working directly on the load. Um, so I would be a little hesitant to try and like pinpoint exactly what exercise is giving that doms, but hopefully some of that helped. Um, gyro ball for help with forearm strength, having discomfort in my forearms. I gotta tell you, I don't know what a gyro ball is. I got my laptop in front of me here. Let me take a quick peek here. Gyro ball. The first thing that comes up in Google is gyro ball Pokemon. Um, gyro ball forearm workout. Let's take a peek here. Let's look at this images here. Um, yeah, I, I really don't think if you're having discomfort in your forearms, I really don't think like it's extremely rare. Let me just, cause I'm not really exactly sure about this exact scenario, but it's extremely rare that you need to be doing direct forearm work ever. There's like really unique contexts in which you'd have to do that. Whether you're a strong man, maybe there's part from an athletic perspective, but for everyday people, you don't need to be doing direct forearm work. Um, you need to be doing heavy pulls and just lifting um, to get strong enough forearms to live a functional life. It's not something that needs direct addressing. Uh, so my bet is that if you're having discomfort in your forearms, obviously you can see a qualified physical therapist, somebody that can talk you through this, but my bet is that like direct forearm work outside of unique circumstances probably isn't the answer. There's probably lower hanging fruit somewhere other than, hey, I need to, I'm having discomfort here. Let me directly work that thing harder. I'm not saying that that's impossible to be the answer or that it's impossible that that is the answer, but uh, I would be a smidge skeptical that that is the route I would go down. Uh, next question, wrist wraps for deadlifting, yes or no? Feels like legs could lift heavier but can't hold the weight. I'm gonna be just, we're gonna get in and out of this question in two seconds. Absolutely yes. Lift without straps. Listen to me, guys. We just had, it's funny because this is an amazing question to come after the forearm strength. Ow, I just kicked my leg into the, the desk. Um, lift without straps until you get to a point where your grip becomes the limiting factor. Let me be very clear. Your grip being the limiting factor is a waste of your time. The thing that is the limiting factor is the thing that gets the best stimulus. And so if you're doing a lat pull down or a deadlift, and you have to put the bar down because your grip is giving out, then it is your grip that is getting the best stimulus. I don't know anybody who's doing deadlifts, specifically, number one, first and foremost, to improve grip strength. It might be a byproduct, totally, it is a byproduct. Do all of your pull pulling movements without straps, without versagrips, until you get to a point where you feel like this, where you feel like, hey, I could do more, but I can't hold it. Then go get versagrips and never look back. Versagrips, or lifting straps. Versa grips, I would say, are more expensive, a little easier to use, and last longer, but lifting straps are like 15 bucks, versa grips are like 65 bucks. I have both, they both work great. It's not like it's not like lifting straps are, are crap, they're not. Um, <clears throat> once you get to a point where you feel like you could lift more, if it were not for your grip strength, go get versa grips, go get straps. I do recommend the first year of your lifting career, probably not using them because Developing some baseline of grip strength, probably a good idea. And you probably won't need to. You're probably just, no offense, you're probably just not strong enough to need that yet. Um, so those are my recommendations. I'm a big advocate. I think Versa grips are great. Go on Amazon, type in lifting straps and anything on Amazon will work totally fine. I have 
some by like Harbinger or some bullshit, uh, but they're all the same. Next question. Any options in home bodies to have a bit more of a glute focus? Holy crap. I'm not, I need to take a deep breath. Um, the amount of glute volume in home bodies is fucking insane in my opinion. There is so much glute work. We, if you do the, my first advice, by the way, is to just take a peek at the optional exercises. So we have some, we have two slots that are optional. Both of them are options for additional glute volume. If you want more glute volume, do those. At the end of each upper body day, I give you a an optional exercise. Uh, uh, there's a block. It's the last block of the day. It's optional. And it will provide you two options. One of those options is more glute volume. But let me be totally blunt with you. I don't want to be a dick here. I, I literally just like, I love the question. I appreciate asking. I, I know that starting a, a sentence with, I don't want to be a dick makes you sound like a dick. But I mean this genuinely. There is a ton, a ton of glute volume in this program, especially if you're doing that extra glute volume that's in there. There's so much glute volume in here. It's crazy. I can't even fathom how people can do the extra glute volume that I provide in those optional slots. I can't even imagine doing that. So my advice to you, please, please start with an internal audit of am I actually pushing myself in the work that I'm already doing? I promise you there is not just sufficient glute volume, but probably an excess of glute volume in here. If you're training as hard as you should be training, if you're focused on progression week to week, if your technique is in check, if you're resting long enough between sets, if you're doing all the things that are laid out in the program, there is more, I believe if I believe with my whole heart, there is more than enough glute volume in here. Um, so that I literally just, I'm, I'm staring at it right now. I'm, I'm sitting in front of my laptop, so I just pulled up the program just to like get like, make sure I'm like coming at this from like a fair perspective. There is more than enough glute volume in here. Um, yeah, there's more than enough glued volume in here. It's really, um, I know that our quad day has a quad dominant split squat and a, a, a like a heel elevated hex bar deadlift, but you get glutes in the quad dominant split squat. You do, you get a lot of glute meat actually. You get glutes in the heel elevated hex bar deadlift because we can only make that so quad dominant. It ends up being very balanced split between quads and glutes. And we're doing glute bridge on our quad day. And then we have walking lunges as one of the optional exercises. We have lying leg abductions on the other day for a little glute minimus, glute med. The glute day itself is RDL lunge hip extension. I mean, that's a ton of glutes. My, I mean, not that what, not that what my experience is everyone's experience doesn't. But like, if I do RDL, three sets of RDL, three sets of reverse lunge, three sets of hip extension, and I do them appropriately close to failure, my glutes are sore for. Not that the, again, not the soreness is the be all end all. My point is that like it's. Not, I, my glutes would be dying for a break. Uh, and then on the quad day, you're getting three sets of heavy glute bridges, three sets of deadlifts, basically, which are a significant amount of glute volume. And then the following day, you can do walking lunges if you choose the optional glute volume, which is insane. Um, so I would definitely recommend, if you want more glute volume, do the optional exercises, totally. But more than anything, do an internal audit, check on your form, check on your effort, make sure you're getting close to failure, make sure you're focused on progression, make sure you're like, really taking each rep of every set seriously. Um, there is more than enough glute volume. And, and to kind of curtail this with something that might sound douchey is that if this is not enough sets for you to get a glute stimulus that feels sufficient, then your problem is not more sets. More sets will not get you there. If this doesn't get you there, more sets won't get you there. Um, it is likely a quality of work issue, not a quantity of work issue. Um, and I hope that that's mostly like something that's encouraging because you don't need more work than this. You need either better quality work or a shift in perspective in terms of expectation of results. Um, yeah, that's my general opinion though. I think this is a t this program, let me be very honest with you. I know that I have about 5% of the program is men. 95% of the program is women. We are very catering to the glute back and delt volume. There is plenty of that in there. Again, my opinion. Next question. Uh, do, 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 a weight belt for PP post, uh, yeah, PP women. Is it necessary? I've researched. Um, got you, post-pregnancy women. Um, I don't think, yeah, okay. So weight belt for, let's say, post-pregnancy women. Is it necessary? I've researched. 
know what are your thoughts i've had five babies sorry that was a uh, somebody trying to <laughs> trying to get all the words into the text box which i respect um i don't think a weight belt is necessary ever outside of like competition circumstances so let's just start with that never um the point of a weight belt is to reinforce your ability to create what's called intra-abdominal pressure. Intra, within, abdominal, abdomen, pressure. Um, it's not there to save you and when, you know, with, with bad technique. It's not there to keep your spine in a good place without you doing anything about it. It's there to reinforce stuff you should already be doing, which is creating an intra-abdominal pressure. Now, I would kind of say for hypertrophy's sake, for people who are interested in hypertrophy, you probably never need a belt ever. I, I don't think you should ever need a belt um, because the kind of intra-abdominal pressure, so people have used the term bracing. The type of bracing that is required for things like powerlifting, you're just not going to be doing in hypertrophy because the main reason is because you're gonna be doing more reps in hypertrophy. If you're doing a set of 10 RDLs, you're not doing a big Valsalva maneuver, breathe, brace, descend. You're not doing that on every rep. You'd pass out. You can't do that 10 times. Um, and so the breathing techniques for hypertrophy, because the rep ranges are higher, are significantly different. They're different enough that the weight belt probably isn't super necessary. Now, just because the weight belt isn't super necessary doesn't mean there's a downside. The only downside of wearing a weight belt is if you are treating the weight belt like the, like a sa like a safety valve where you're just like, hey, I'm, I'm not gonna worry about my technique because the belt will save me. That's, that's the only real downside of the belt. And so if you wanna wear a belt, that's great. Just make sure that everything else you're doing is still staying top notch uh, and that you're only wearing the belt for comfort or, you know, again, for maybe like a reinforcement of some of that intra-abdominal pressure. But in a hypertrophy context, we really don't need to be wearing a weight belt um, because the benefit of wearing the weight belt is reinforcing this intra-abdominal pressure that you probably aren't doing in any grandiose way in hypertrophy because you're doing so many reps that that's probably not something you're doing on every rep. Um, I've worn a weight belt before on RDLs, but mostly during like really heavy, really low rep stuff. So in that like four to six rep range. Um, so I, I would make a judgment call of like whether or not this helps me. And, and at the end of the day, like I would recommend if you're interested in wearing a belt, try it, try wearing a belt. See how it goes. You might be like, wow, I, I feel amazing. My technique's amazing. I feel secure. That tactile feedback around my lower back and my spine and my abdomen feels good. I'm not, you know, I'm still focused on my technique and my tempo and my execution. I'm not just like relying on the belt. That's great. That's awesome. It's like knee sleeves. Are knee sleeves super helpful? Not really. If you wear knee sleeves and you fucking love it, should you do it? Absolutely. I love wearing knee sleeves. Keeps my knees a little bit warm. A little bit of that progression, uh, compression feels nice. Is it actually doing a whole lot? Not really, um, but maybe it feels comfortable. And if it's something that, you know, placebo affects you into feeling confident and good, that, that's awesome. Go ahead and do it. Oh boy, I am, I'm fucked, man. We're 28 minutes in. I've done 10, que 10 questions and there's like 40. Shit. Um, all right, next question. Minimum sets, reps, muscle per week to see body comp results. I'm going to call your name out, Ingrid. Wonderful question. Um, I'm going to be doing a whole talk on this on this exact topic. Is like, what is the least you can train and still make gains? Um, and so I recommend either coming to Vegas for March 6th and 7th for the Real Coaches Conference, uh, Real Coaches Summit, or paying for the web. You can buy, like, uh, whatever. I'll be speaking, and you can buy the web archives, you know, a recording of me doing that. What I would say is I'll attach in the, in the description a podcast with me and my friend Brian Borstein where we have an introduction to this minimalist discussion. Um, what I will say, because I don't want to give away the goat here, is that even, a, that's not a, that's not a, what am I giving, giving away the, give away something, I don't know. I don't want to give away the game, whatever. Um, is that it's less than you think if you do things like we talked about earlier with that three times per week discussion, if you train mostly in the length of position, compound lifts, close to failure, consider intensity techniques, um, sleep, eat enough protein, all that stuff. And so it is less than you think. Um, and, and I and I really recommend, I really think that obviously I have an hour long talk about this coming in, in March. And so I can't go into it right now. I can, I'm not talking about, it's like it's not fucking proprietary info. What I'm saying is I have a whole podcast on this and I recommend listening to it. 
The answer is it's less than you think. And if you are really interested in this topic, I know that you will love the discussion that I have with Brian and even more the discussion that I end up having in March. And so I'm gonna link that in the description. Please go listen to it. The answer is less than you think if you do some things well. Next question. Walking good cardio, yes or no? Some say it's just steps and some say it counts as cardio. Truthfully, I would stop differentiating between these two things. Steps, cardio, it's just movement. It's activity. Be active. Is there a difference between low intensity cardio and high intensity, higher intensity cardio in terms of cardiovascular benefit? There's probably a difference, yeah. You know, getting your heart rate up occasionally through the week is probably a good idea. But you do that with lifting pretty well if you're training. I'm not saying it's the exact same as cardio. Uh, it's. I'm not saying it's the exact same as higher intensity cardio, but I would stop differentiating between this. I think the differentiating between this is stopping people from going out for walks because they feel like it's useless. Be more active, get more steps, get out, go for a fucking walk. Going for a walk is the most underrated, underutilized, lowest hanging fruit in terms of health and mental and physical health benefits that exists on this planet. Um, stop differentiating between cardio and like my, the first stop, the first thing I would do is stop differentiating between steps and cardio. You, you, cardio for most people is just an accumulation of steps. Get get moving, get more active, You know, get eight to 12,000 steps per day on average. If you have to do that by getting on a treadmill and, and going for a fast walk or an incline walk or even a jog or intervals, cool. If you can get that by moving more throughout the day, parking further from the you know target and, and then walking around more and you know going for a walk with the dog more, great, do, do that. I, I really think this the differentiating between the two does more harm than good. Doesn't mean that there might not be, with a closer look, a difference between the two. Uh, I think technically there might, you know, not, if I'm being fair, I think technically there is a difference in terms of cardiovascular benefit between walking and something that gets your heart rate up more. There's probably a difference. But if you lift rigorously a couple times a week and you go for walks and you manage your nutrition and you don't eat too many calories and you eat, you know, enough micronutrients and fiber, I think you're going to be a like in the pinnacle, in that 95th percentile of health, you know, to get you the next step of the way, maybe you do some form of cardio that gets your heart rate up a little bit more. But oh man, 99 out of 100 circumstances, I don't want people differentiating between these two. I just, God, people need to get moving. Go for a fucking walk. Whatever you can do to get moving, do it. Whatever you enjoy and can do sustainably, do it. And stop feeling, oh, is this cardio or is this just steps, motherfucker? It's movement and we need people to move more. And no, I did not just speed myself up to two times speed. That was just normal talking speed. Um, so hopefully that helps. I don't think that, I think the differentiation between these two does more harm than good. Get moving in a way that you enjoy and can do, you know, sustainably and consistently over the long term. Next question. When does the new meso start in January and is it okay for a 17-year-old boy in the gym? Uh, the next meso starts on on January 16th. Uh, I will, the program will actually launch the Friday before. January 16th is a Monday the program goes live the Friday before. I do a Zoom call with my group um, where we go through everything in the new program where we talk and break down what we're doing, why we're doing it, uh, what stays the same, what's changing and why. And I open that up for questions. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, so that is that would be the 13th, right? 13, 14, 15, 16, yep. Uh, that would be that Friday beforehand. But yeah, the program officially will launch that Monday on the 16th. Um, it is absolutely fine for a 17-year-old boy in the gym. The, 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 problems that, the problems that plague a 17-year-old boy have nothing to do with like physiology. Like it's there's nothing that a 17-year-old boy can't do here. The problem with being 17 years old is, is mostly a practical like teenage issue of let me let me be let me backtrack on that a little bit. Like there's nothing like there's no person who's too young for this program or any program. There's no such thing as being too early to lift weights physiologically. There's no stunting of growth. In fact, there's only benefit to starting lifting earlier. The problem is like people's mental capacity to follow a program. You know, like when I was a teenager, I was just a stupid fucking kid. The idea that I would be able to like follow along with a group, like I just like you know, it was 20 years ago, and so who knows, but I don't think I could have handled that mentally. Kids today, a little bit different. They're more tech savvy. They're more understanding of like how to work through apps and stuff like that, watch videos on their phone. Um, and I have a bunch of people in my group doing the program with their kid, and so their kid is signed up as well. 15, I, I know for a fact there's at least one 15-year-old working out with mom, and they both are in the group, and they're doing it together, or, or they're both like kind of doing it 
you know, maybe not exactly at the same time, but they're doing it together. So at least this person has somebody with them, you know, to kind of talk through it. But I'm, I'm highly available in the app. I answer every question. And so if, you're, if your son does join, you know, please have him interact in the group, send some form videos. I mean, no, man, anybody getting into lifting form is the most important thing, establishing good technique and motor patterns early on in training will bode well for the long term. So send form videos. I will be there. I will help him. Um, that would be super fun, by the way. Uh, I love the couple of like younger people in there. It's fantastic. It's really great to see. Next question. 17-year-old obese client. Would you suggest tracking macros to lose weight? Any downsides to that? This is a really loaded question. Um, physiologically, of course, there are no downsides to that. Physiologically. What you need to ask yourself is what are the potential downsides to that in terms of relationship with food? You know, has this person, you know, do we have lower hanging fruit than calorie tracking? Um, uh, I think that a good podcast to listen to is my most recent one with Buddy Your Macros titled How to Track Your how to track your nutrition without fucking up your relationship with food. So I would take into account some of the stuff we talk about in that podcast. There's no downside to tracking calories physiologically. But I would maybe just take a pit stop and see if there are any low-hanging fruits. Going for more walks, maybe gently shifting meal pattern, like sort of meal, like establishing maybe a uh, more balanced meal composition, teaching this person how to build more balanced meals, getting a protein and a plant on the plate. Are there lower hanging fruit? You know, not drinking as much alcohol. I know it's per 17 year old, but some, you know, whatever kids do with these days, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe trying to reduce or, you know, I was gonna say trying to reduce some of the hyper palatable food, but, but I would almost more focus on instead of subtracting certain things, adding certain things. Can we get more fruits and vegetables? Can we get more protein? Can we get on a more regular eating pattern, right? Can we get rid of some of the grazing and the snacking habits and we can we get into a more consistent meal pattern? So I might look at some of those lower hanging fruit for a, a younger person and somebody who has a lot of weight, you know, uh, a lot of extra body weight, let's say somebody who has obesity. I might look at least for some of those lower hanging fruit just because I, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with tracking. Uh, it just makes me a little bit I'm just a little bit more hesitant with a young person to jump into calorie tracking. I just would really want to know that person. Where are they from an intellectual standpoint, a maturity standpoint? I'm not attacking people like you're too immature to track calories. I just think that there's there's room to be just a little bit more cautious with the use of tracking calories at this age where we might be able to get some lower hanging fruit and see some really nice benefits from actively increasing activity and looking at some non-tracking, just healthy habits that we can start to include or improve or be more consistent with. So, Hopefully that helps. Next question. If I hit eight steps target daily, is there any need, any added benefit to adding elliptical cycling as cardio? We kind of just answered this. There's probably a little bit of a benefit. There's like, if you lift weights rigorously three to five times a week and you walk, how much of the cardiovascular benefits are you getting? I'd say a very, very high percentage, but not all. There's probably a gap of benefit that's missing that is covered by higher intensity cardio. I think that's a fact, but I think you are getting a massive, massive percentage of that with lifting and walking, walking being mega accessible. And so I do think those are the lowest hanging fruit most people should focus on. Uh, next question. How would you real, realistically find your MEV and MAV? So MEV is minimum effective volume, which basically says what's the least amount of work that I can do and still make gains. And MAV, which is like maximum adaptive volume, which is like uh, where is the amount of volume that I do where I get my best gains? Um, Monica asked this. Monica, nice question. Um, I'm not a huge fan. Like I'm not a huge fan with people trying to be like understanding that MEV and MAV exist is important, I guess. Not important. Important is overstated. Um, trying to nail this down for yourself takes a very long time. What I would say is look at general guidelines, which again, I would listen to the podcast with Brian Borstein. I would come to my talk in March. I would listen to the audio of that or the video. Um, get a general guideline, a general outline for what the industry and the research says is roughly where we, like MEV, minimum effective volume, is essentially a minimalist approach. It's like how little can I do but still make gains? And I would look at the general guidelines for a range of volume that fits with a minimalist approach where we see people still make notable gains with very little volume. And I would start with that. And then I would ask myself, am I progressing 
over the long term, not in the short term, over three to six mesocycles. If I do this much volume, am I getting stronger in the hypertrophy rep range, in the hypertrophy, more hypertrophy-esque exercises over the long term, not the short term, the long term? Six months, am I getting stronger? Do I PR meso to meso? Am I, you know, not from from day one to day seven, am I progressing? Excuse me, am I progressing? I'm not worried about that. I'm saying, do, pick, uh, you know, look at what the industry says and that the, whatever the, we look at the research is something I'm, you know, I love talking about. Go listen to the podcast with Brian. Come to the talk. Listen to the audio. Um, and start there. Look at what the research says and say, hey, X amount of volume, which seems to be low, seems to yield people pretty solid gains with very little volume and start there and ask yourself, am I progressing over the long term? Not the short term, but the long term. If you are, you're making gains. How to find your maximum adaptive volume? I'm a little less passionate about this because I'm way more passionate in people taking on a bit more of a minimalist approach, a bit more of a time efficient approach. I don't really love the maximum adaptive approach because that's that's for safe. That's in my opinion, the people who should be worried about that are bodybuilders, professional athletes. Um, you know, you can you can become insanely strong and jacked with a minimum effective volume approach. Uh, it might take a smidge longer, but you can get unbelievable results over a reasonable amount of time doing it that way. How would you find your maximum adaptive volume? You would incrementally increase volume over time until you get to a point where you're like, I'm not recovering between sessions. I'm not able to progress. I'm on the I'm beyond the point of maximal return. If you look at a graph of diminishing, if you Google graph of diminishing returns, at a certain point, there's a point of maximal return, and after that, we get negative returns. Um, so basically, I would incrementally increase volume until you got to a point where you're like, I'm not progressing anymore because I'm not recovering. I don't actually recommend people actually go through that, to be honest with you, because I'm not, I think 99.999% of people need to be more focused on being efficient in the gym, not, oh my God, how much can I do? I'm way less concerned with people being like, how much can I do and survive? And I'm way more interested in how little can I do and still make appreciable progress. But that's how you would do it. Next question, how much protein do you have now with each meal? Me personally, um, I try and get uh, about uh, about 40 grams of protein with each meal. I eat four times per day. Um, I think that we are looking, I think, uh, how can I answer this question in a helpful way? Me, 40 grams per meal. I know that if I do 40 grams per meal, that gets me to 160 grams for the day. I'm 195 pounds. That's more than enough for me. I think we, uh, with uh, you know, uh, if you listen to the podcast of five things I've changed my mind about, I think protein requirements, I think are a little bit higher than they need to be. And so if I get 160 at 190 pounds, that's point more than 0.8. And so that's way more than enough, in my opinion, that I need to get really nice gains. I think that that number is probably in the like 0.6 to 0.8 range where we see like a notable drop off with more. Um, and so I do about 40 grams per meal. Now there is um, a threshold for how much we want to get per meal to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So there is like, a am not just using 40 grams per, per meal because I need to get to 160, but that's primarily what I'm doing it for because I know that total daily protein is most important. But we also know that there's a per meal amount of protein that we want to get to fully stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So basically, we want to hit X amount of protein per meal to get the most muscle building benefits from that meal. And we see that that number is probably roughly in like the, oh man, I wish I had this in front of me. I think it's about 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So if I'm 190 pounds, that puts me at like roughly 80 God, let's do 80 kilograms, maybe 80, somewhere 85. So let's do pounds to kgs. Um, I'm 195 pounds, 88 kilograms. So if we do 88 divided by 0.5, so that's like 44. Um, I think 0.5 is actually me rounding up. I think anywhere from like 0.3 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of protein per meal can be really nice. What does that boil down to? Do you need to be doing these calculations? Not really. If you're a smaller person, anywhere in that like 25 to 35 at least per meal is great. If you're a slightly larger person, then maybe more in that like 35 to 50 grams of protein per meal. Um, but at the end of the day, total protein. Listen, guys, if you want protein intake in one sentence, eat at least 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight and split that up over at least three meals. If you do that, you are good to go. 0.7 grams or more per day, Split roughly evenly over three meals, at least. You can have more meals. Um, at least three meals, you're gonna be good to go. Next question. 
Holy crap. I thought we were going to get through all these. I am sadly mistaken here. Um, We'll see how I go. I, I, I'll see how many more I go. Um, all right, next question. Some exercise in the program, I may not be able to increase weight or reps. Can I just keep if it's still challenging? Um, in a nutshell, you should keep trying to progress. Like every time you look at what you did last week, you should be trying to do a little bit more. If you keep trying to do a little bit more, but you can't, eventually you will. Like 99 out of 100 times, eventually you will. So two things I recommend you do. One is stay patient and keep trying to progress. Just because you didn't progress does not mean you didn't make gains. If someone's like, hey, Jordan, I only matched what I did last week on lateral raises. Does that mean I didn't make any gains? Fuck no, of course you made gains if, if the training was hard. And that's why, that's why I say you should be trying to progress. Because if somebody says they, try, they, are, they tried to progress, what that means is they worked really hard And to me, that is the threshold we need to make gains. It is not the progression that causes muscle growth. It is the trying hard. It is the getting close to failure. However, it is the pursuit of progression week to week that ensures you continue to train hard enough to make gains. That's a Jordan Lips original quote here. It is not the progression that causes muscle growth. It is the trying hard. But it is the pursuit of progression that ensures you continue to try hard. And so either... First of all, don't worry about it. As long as you're training really hard, that's what causes muscle growth. And as long as you're trying to progress, you eventually will. As long as the other recovery factors are permissive, you're getting enough sleep, eating enough calories, all that stuff. Um, Cool. Next question. If you work out at different gyms, how do you track your progress when machines feel very different, right? 30 at one gym is not 30 at the other. That is a good point. That is when you can fall back on using RIR more consistently. So I am not a big fan of using RIR every week. I'm a big fan of using RIR in week one, closing the book on RIR, and just focusing on progression thereafter. Maybe layering on top of that the occasional specific failure set. But if you are training in different gyms, then it might be helpful to use RIR as a, as a guideline. It's like, hey, I know that this is week three, I know that that I'm roughly going to be at a 210 RIR and I'm going to rely on that. So th- the more you train at different gyms, the more of an understanding of RIR you should probably have. The more you train at the same gym, the more I want you to focus on just progressing. Um I guess if you train at different gyms, it's not just an understanding of RIR that you should probably have, but but also just an understanding of training hard. Like again, in the same breath as the last sentence, the last question, it's the training hard that grows muscle growth. So it will be harder to track progress if you're traveling and you're training at different gyms. We have people that travel all around the world and those people are not going to lean as heavily on objective progression. Let's be totally clear. If you are traveling around the world all year round, you are not keeping a, a, as much of a logbook because the data is you know, not as useful because what was, you know, maybe you had kilograms, you're in Europe and you're back in the United States and you have pounds. And even if you're in, your home gym and then this gym or this LA fitness to that LA fitness, even if the gyms are identical, the weights might not be exactly the same. So I would fall back on training hard and maybe adopting a, hey, let me take the last set to failure so I know that I'm training hard mentality. And I might adopt using RIR on a weekly basis where it's like, hey, week one is a three, two, one. The next week is a two, one, zero. The next week is a one, zero, zero. Maybe the last week is a zero, 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 all sets to failure and then be done and deload, et cetera. Um, But to be honest with you, if it were me, and I'm traveling quite a bit, I might adopt a last set to failure mentality because that is what matters, is working hard. And I might let go a little bit of the objective tracking of everything because the data is a little bit yet less useful. It depends on, are you at two different gyms and you're consistently at those two or are you all over the place all the time? Next question. I've been doing 12, 10, eight reps, going up in weight each set. Decent way to train or progress. Yeah, it's called, what you're doing is called a descending rep, right? Your reps are going down, ascending load. The reps are, the load is going up. So descending rep, ascending load. You are doing what's, you know, colloquially called a pyramid style where you're going down in reps. It's a reverse pyramid, I guess. You're going down in reps, up in load. That's a fine way to progress. Uh, That's a fine way to train. Um, And it is something, descending rep, ascending load, is something we use in my group you know, intermittently, we will do some descending rep, ascending load work. The downside of doing that is it's a little bit harder to be objective with your progression. If you do 12 reps at 100 pounds and 10 reps at 110 pounds 
eight reps at 120 pounds. And next week, you have to, quote, do a little bit more, right? Because all forms of progression are going to be based around doing a little bit more than you did last week. It's a little bit convoluted. Do I go up on all the sets? Do I do now 12 reps at 105 pounds, 10 reps at 115 pounds, and eight reps at 125 pounds? Do I go up on one of those? Do, do I go up on the last one? Do I go up on the first one? It's a little bit more complicated. And that's not to say that it's too complicated because we do it in my group and I communicate to people that I want people to try and go up on all sets. And if they can't, try and go up on something. So that's usually how we'll discuss it. It's like, hey, try and go up on everything a tiny bit. But if you find that you can't go up on everything, just go up on something. So you might go up on the first set, match the other two. You might go you know, stay the same on the first two and try and beat your last set. Those are all fine forms of progression. It's just a little bit less straightforward. If you did 100 pounds for 12, 12, 12, instead, right? The, the alternative is doing the same weight for three sets across all sets. If you did 100 pounds for 12, 12, 12, let's say, next week you have to go up. It's a little bit easier. Do you go 100 pounds and you try and add reps? You go to 13 reps on at least one set? Or do you just move to 105 pounds and, you know, again, try and match reps? It's a little bit easier that way. This is just like you're doing, you did one weight. So you've reduced the amount of variables that are changing. You did one weight for 12 reps uh, instead of this weight for this reps, this weight for this reps, this weight for this reps. And now I need to do more than that. It feels like a little bit, convol- it's a little bit complicated. Um, it's not too complicated. It can totally work. Just saying that that is the downside that you need to make sure that you have a progression model week to week you understand that you can apply that has you progressing on things most weeks on most exercises. Next question. Can we go straight from a cut to a lean bulk or is it important to reverse first for metabolism? Yeah. Um, You can go straight from a cut to a bulk basically with no downside. Um, And when I say basically, what I mean is that when you are at the end of a cut, your metabolism is slightly reduced because you've been in a deficit. And so when you are calculating your surplus, so you said the word lean bulk, which I'm not picking on you at all. It's a term that bothers the hell out of me because what you mean is a bulk with not too many extra calories. And that is what all bulks should be. Putting the word lean on it is just annoying. It's You're not annoying me with the question. But like, you've heard this term because it's been marketed to you in this way. When in reality, what, what is a lean bulk? A lean bulk is a bulk with not too many calories, not too many extra calories, so you don't gain too much extra fat. That's what all bulks should be. All bulks should be like that. Anything other than that is a bad idea. Um, and so that's just it. That's what bulking should be that we should normalize that as what bulking is anyway, whatever. Um, so can you go from a cut straight into a small surplus? Let's use the term lean bulk and let's translate that to small surplus. Yes, you can. However, when you are at the end of a cut, your metabolism is temporarily suppressed because it has adapted downward during the deficit. So let's say at the end of the deficit, you're eating 1600 calories and let's say you've been at 1,600 and you have not been losing. And so you can reasonably say, hey, I'm, I'm maintaining at this new calorie range. So as of today, this might be my new maintenance, give or take. But if you put in a cal- calorie calculator, hey, this is my weight, I wanna be in a 200 calorie surplus, it might spit back out 2,200 calories. Because if you were in a weight maintenance phase, your weight, your you wouldn't be currently under uh, some of these metabolic adaptations. Your maintenance calories might be 2,000 and a 200-calorie surplus might be 2,200 and that might work really well. And so at a weight-reduced state, at the end of of a deficit, your maintenance calories are technically a little bit lower than where you could expect them to be over time. I know that that's a little complicated, I'm um, trying to simplify it. If you have, it, if you want to talk more about reverse dieting, go listen to the podcast that I did with Eric Trexler. It is a, a massively helpful discussion of reverse dieting. But the reason that it's helpful in this context is because it talks about metabolic adaptation. Long story short here, listen, if you're ending a deficit at 1,600 calories and you've been at 1,600 calories for long enough that this feels like your new maintenance at this, like you're not losing weight, then going to 200 to 2,200 calories is probably for a short period of time going to be more than a 200 calorie surplus. 
for a period of time while your body undoes those metabolic adaptations, it will be a larger surplus than you ideally want. So your question is, do I need to reverse diet first? No, you need to acknowledge that at least at this current moment, the day that you are increasing calories at this moment, your maintenance calories are lower than what the calorie calculator you just said, you just did says. So if you're eating 16, instead of doing the calorie calculator that tells you to go to 22, maybe you do 19 or 18. And for a short period of time, that will be a surplus. And maybe as your body just goes back to a weight neutral or, or, or a caloric or a neutral energy balance, it's a small surplus. But maybe after a short period of time, it becomes maintenance again. And then you need to increase calories again to create that surplus. So my advice to you is you don't need to wait to go into a surplus. Just assume that your calories are lower than what the calorie calculator says. So if you're like, hey, calorie calculator says a surplus for me is gonna be 2,200, but right now I'm eating 1,600, that feels like a big jump. I wouldn't make that whole jump right away. I would accept that my weight is currently, uh, my maintenance calories are slightly lower, my metabolism is slightly suppressed temporarily, and that if I wanna go into a surplus, I don't need to go as high. You might eventually need to get to 2,200 because as you undo some of those temporary metabolic adaptations, you might need to increase calories to get yourself back into a surplus. So hope that helped a little bit. Obviously, you need a bit of a baseline understanding of metabolic adaptation to understand that. If you don't have it, if that was convoluted to you, complicated, and you want to learn more, please go, I'll link it in the description. Um, It's a podcast with Eric Trexler from Stronger by Science where we talk about metabolic adaptation and reverse dieting. And we do talk about this context of going into a surplus. And so it's definitely something that I would go listen to. Wow, this is, uh, I thought I was gonna get through more questions here. Um, oof, okay. Uh, how many days you train your abs? Me personally, never. I never train my abs directly. You could do that if you wanted. Um, but my goal for me is, uh, there's gonna be a lot of people easy for you to say, totally fine, I understand that. I'm gonna say it anyway, is that my goal for me is to have a functional, functionally strong core. Like I wanna have a strong enough core to go through my life. I mean, think about how simple that is. I, like, what what do we wanna be strong enough for? Life, that's me. I wanna be strong enough for life. So I want my core to be strong enough for life, which I think 99% of people can do without direct ab training, that you will get enough indirect work doing strength training, resistance training, hypertrophy training, whatever. Um, maybe a small asterisk for um, pre-pregnancy ab training, pelvic floor work, you know, after pregnancy ab work, I think that those can have some unique benefits um, specific to that context. If you wanna see your abs, if you plan on actually getting lean enough to have very little body fat to see your abs and you want them to look as amazing as possible, you should train your abs directly. Let's make no mistake about it. You're stepping on stage, you're doing a photo shoot, you want your abs to look as good as possible, you are planning on getting single digit body fat, lean enough to see your abs, and you want them to look the best possible, train them directly. If you have no plans of getting lean enough to see your abs, then I would strongly consider, does this, is this worth my time, right? Aesthetically, you might not ever see the benefit if you don't plan on getting lean enough. Functionally, you might get enough of a benefit to meet functional life threshold of, of core strength without training it directly. Um, and so that's, it's essentially up to you if you want to do that. If you hear all of that, you're like, yeah, I. I I can see my abs right now and I want them to look better. Okay, train them, absolutely. If you have no interest in getting that lean ever and your only goal was aesthetics and you're like, hey, you know, will training my abs make my core look better even when it has more body fat on it? It won't. Um, If you're like, hey, I wanna be more functionally strong in my core, I would first ask yourself like, what evidence do I have in my life that I'm not, that you are not functionally strong enough in your core. Like what has happened to you where you're like, yeah, that's my my core strength. Um, That needs to get better so that I can climb this mountain or I can play with my kids more. I can, you know, go for more hikes or whatever. Um, I don't know if if people actually experience those things. Again, the context of of pre and post-pregnancy I think is relevant. Um, But outside of that, I'm I'm not so sure. I just would, whatever. I just want people to make informed decisions. Is this worth your time? All right, we gotta put a clip on this here. Um, I'm gonna answer one, two, three, three more, and then I'll answer the rest on Instagram. Cool. 
Okay, I'm going into a cut after a seventh month bulk, seven month bulk. Better to continue with hypertrophy based workout or switch to higher volume with more cardio built in. I will tell you right this second, if you, this is not my opinion. This is only what you want. If you want in your cut to maintain all your muscle so that your body preferentially chooses body fat to, to burn off, you know, to meet the calorie deficit, keep lifting for hypertrophy, right? I mean, if you want to lose fat and not muscle, keep lifting like you want to build muscle. Full stop, end of story. Um, I, I don't want to nitpick what you mean by higher volume, but let's just talk about like the more cardio built in. Um, you can do some cardio without worrying about, you know, killing your muscle gains, but I would not stop doing hypertrophy training. I would not stop doing hypertrophy training. I would actually not change your training much at all. Um, I, I would not change your training much at all. I would primarily create the deficit through nutrition and I would make sure you're getting enough steps. That's what I would, I mean, that's like 99% of it. Um, so I would not switch your training at all. If your goal is to maintain muscle and primarily lose fat, right? I mean, that's that's like, I don't want to say that that's what you should be doing, but I'm pretty close to saying that. Um, I would make sure I would create most of that, that deficit through nutrition, train for hypertrophy to build muscle so you don't lose muscle, so you lose fat primarily, body fat. Um, if you want to add some cardio on top of that as a means for achieving a certain step number that you give yourself a goal on average, I think that's a fine plan. Next question, I'm doing the lying leg curl. How should the leg position be? I keep slipping and mostly feel my calves. Would prefer the seated option, but my gym doesn't have. Um, how should the leg position be? It's tough without like a discussing this via a form video, but here's a couple of tips. Um, the machine will have a pivot point about which the, the arm of the machine moves, right? So the, the machine has a pad, that pad goes, you know, like around your Achilles, um, and that part of the machine moves about a pivot point. I would fig, fix the machine to fit your body so that the machine pivot point lines up with your knee joint. And so you can do that if you sit down on the machine, you, you get into the machine, you look down, and there you will see the pivot point on the machine. It's like, it'll be a circle. And you want that circle to line up roughly with your knee joint. That will make it the most comfortable. You want the pad to be roughly on your Achilles. And you want to make sure you're holding on to something and actively pulling on those handles a little bit. It will help engage the lats a little bit, stabilize the pelvis a little bit, and can help you feel it a little bit more in the hamstrings. As far as feeling in the calves, the calves are a... One of the primary knee flexors, they bend the knee and they're mostly in charge with the first 15 degrees of knee flexion. So when your leg is straight up to about 15 degrees of knee bending. And so your calves absolutely should be working. They, they, they are doing what they are biomechanically, anatomically designed to do. So there's nothing wrong with this. And me personally, I like to train the knee flexion as a function 100%. So I don't want you to reduce the range of motion, so you never go down beyond those 15 degrees. So you never straighten out your leg. What I might do is what we would call slow on the gas pedal. Don't fling the weight out of the bottom. Pull it up slowly until you hit that about 15 degree mark and then accelerate through the movement. If you explode out of the bottom, you will feel it more in your calves. If you pull the weight up slow, nice and control, and then accelerate through the movement, once you cross that you know, roughly 15 degrees or like the first quarter of the movement, you might have a good chance of feeling it a little bit less in your calves. I honestly am not, like, I know that you want to build hamstrings, you're in this machine to build hamstrings, but if your calves are just getting fucking smoked, then I actually kind of am not so mad about that because that that to me signals that your calves are a weak point and that as far as um, your knee flexor group of muscles, they seem to be a weak point. And so getting them stronger from a functional standpoint seems like a good idea. Um, that would be, an, I'd have that sort of thing in the back of my mind. Okay, last question. In the group programming, if I want to do Peloton, better to do it the same day, same day as leg days, better to do it on the same day or the day after legs. Got you, got you. Um, well, we have two, two contexts of better. Better like will interfere less with hypertrophy. Um, I don't think it's really going to make a big difference. I think, I, like, I just, I'm left with a feeling 
that you should be doing it when it's most convenient for you. I don't think if you do a Peloton twice per week, it's gonna interfere with your hypertrophy in any notable way, in any organizable fashion. The one thing I would not do is do the Peloton right before you go train legs. So Peloton and then immediately go train legs. I would not do that. If you're not doing that, I really wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, if it's a really intense Peloton, I would not do it the day before legs either. So if you have legs on Monday, upper body on Tuesday, then off on Wednesday, then legs on Thursday, so upper or lower body on Monday and Thursday, I would recommend uh, Monday and Thursday. I would recommend not doing the Peloton on Wednesday. That's about it. And I wouldn't recommend doing it right before you do your leg session. All right, my camera's just telling me I have one minute left, which is convenient because that was the last question. Thank you all for listening. I will see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.